William Gibson's Neuromancer depicts a grim vision of the future, where megacorporations rule and giant neon-lit cities sprawl across the landscape. He totally didn't steal the idea from Blade Runner. This novel is the story of Case, a hacker who jacks into the Matrix. No, not that Matrix, but an imagined virtual reality version of the World Wide Web. In telling this noir tale of crime and corporate espionage, Gibson almost single-handedly created the genre of cyberpunk while winning all of science fiction literature's top critical awards. Those accolades, and the six million copies the novel has sold, would leave some people convinced this book is a classic, but we'll decide that for ourselves. So, pop open a bottle of Kirin Ichiban, watch out for that black ice, and join us in the Matrix. It's time for episode 77 of Toasting the Classics, Neuromancer. Welcome to Toasting the Classics, the podcast where we take something that people call a classic and we talk about it while we drink something inspired by the classic. In this case, we're doing a book that I chose. Oh, my name is Dave MacArthur. And my name is Clint Lanier. We went with a book this time, and what I chose was Neuromancer by William Gibson. What do you think? Did you get it all read? You're good? Have you read this before? Yeah, I've read it before. I'm good. We read it. It was uh, exactly as I remembered it. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Book came out in 1984, I think. Uh huh. That yeah, right? that's right. Um, 1984. It uh, didn't come out to much fanfare, but it's since become kind of a huge success. I think it sold a little bit more than my most recent book. It's about six and a half million. Just a smudging above. Just you know, just about six point four million more or something. <laughs> I would say six point four something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Subtract a hundred, maybe. A couple uh, digits. Anyway, uh, a couple yeah. digits, but yeah. Right, but uh, so it's funny. it's it's. It's become an alleged classic in the sci-fi genre. Right. What is it known for? Why is it such a big deal, according to people who think they know more than us? Well, one thing that it's known for, if nothing else, and, and I, I saw it referred to as little fanfare as well. I saw that mm -hmm. I saw that noted many times when talking about the release of this book. And I'm guessing that means not a lot of distribution, not a lot of advertising, and maybe right. not a lot of sales right away. But mm -hmm. this book was huge when it came out critically because it, it mm -hmm. won the triple crown of science fiction writing, which is to win mm -hmm. the Hugo, Nebula, and Philip K. Dick all in the same year. And I think those awards come out. They're not like awarded 10 years later or something. I think they're given. Yeah, yeah they're given at the time. In, but in you, have, you say critically, sci-fi critics are different than we'll say this pop literature and so this forth. I mean, this isn't going to end up on Oprah's list or anything like that. So and it's, this it's, is before the days when everybody would figure a successful a successful fantasy or science fiction novel today, you'd have people immediately clamoring for the book and TV rights, like the day the book came out, because there's billions of dollars in that today. And people have recognized that. In 1984, despite the success of things like Star Wars, that just wasn't the case. There wasn't you weren't looking to to translate fantasy and sci-fi works immediately into big right. blockbuster, uh, you know, Game of Thrones. Probably Game mm -hmm. of Thrones is the thing that really did that. Took something that was fantasy and and really made a ton of money off of it. Maybe I'm not remembering something else that was before that, but Harry Potter, I guess, Maybe. but that was always broader. Yeah. It always had a more broad appeal than George Martin, or at least at the time it did. I think, you know, I think there's like Hunger Games, Maze Runner, you know, there are a lot of these. Lord of the Rings. Like, when Lord of the Rings became a finally became a successful movie, mm -hmm. might be the time when that was like, okay, we can take these books and we can make money off of them. Yeah. Because people had tried things like that before and they were sort of successful, but not, I don't right. know. Like, for instance, this one's been in 
it sounds like a kind of development hell for decades. Yeah, not getting yeah, made. it's never, it's never, yeah, it hasn't been made at all. Why don't you? Do you want to recap the 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 uh, story for us for those? A lot of the things we talk about with this book are going to be things that seem like they've appeared in a million other things, but this is the first place they were done. This this book is the story of a professional hacker living in Japan when the book starts because he's run into a bunch of trouble doing his job back in the States in what they call the uh, BAMA sprawl, the Boston Atlanta Metropolitan Authority, something like that. I don't know what the sprawl, I don't know what Bama, I can't remember what Bama stands for. Confusing that Bama is where he lives and that's also the name of a state. That threw me off the first couple of times I read it. So he's living in Japan, kind of in exile in a way because he doesn't have his skills anymore and he gets mixed up in a caper. And I'm going to admit to you right now, and I had this problem when I've read noir detective novels as well. I had trouble following the plot and what was going on in the capers that he was involved with. But essentially, it's a lot like a book like The Big Sleep or something. There's a whole bunch of shadowy figures behind everything that's going on. There's a femme fatale that he gets involved with. They go on this jet-setting adventure all around the world and then eventually up into space that leads to uncovering the fact that the movers and shakers of the plot are AI, multiple different AI, bad guys who are the authorities who are supposed to control the AI, and then... Other bad guys that are the Yakuza, and then other bad guys that are corporations. So it's basically lots of shadowy figures and organizations, all represented by a wasp hive that he destroys with fire. That's probably the most punk rock image in the whole book. In terms of this being cyberpunk, the idea of his deepest dream being to set fire and destroy these like, you know, corporate fascist, overly intricated organizations is a very punk rock impulse, I thought. Otherwise, it's just a noir that's set in a cyber cyber future. Which in, in, in a big way, it sort of is. I mean, he um, there's a interview with William Gibson, and he said that he saw Blade Runner, which came out, I think, mm-hmm. in 82 or 83. And he was like, 82. oh, man. Yeah, he's like, nobody's going to believe my story is original. He's Everybody's going to think right. it's ripping off of this, right? So it's not... It's not new, you know. His film noir is not new. Tech noir. Remember, we talked about tech noir in um, where was that? We brought up tech noir. Tech noir was in Terminator. There was the club. It was called in Terminator, tech right? Noir. Right. Called tech noir. Yeah. Noir. So I mean, there was um, oh, yeah. arguably Blade Runner was was maybe the first first of that kind of genre. In film, it's probably not Blade Runner is probably not the first thing, but boy, is it! It's it must have hit people like a, like a lightning bolt at the time in terms of yeah. what it depicts compared to what had been seen before. Is really nothing like Blade Runner before Blade Runner, right? Right. I, except probably the way people felt when they saw the first, like they saw that movie Metropolis, like back in the nineteen twenties mm. or something like yeah. that, like you know something like that, like really imagining yeah. like a future and just probably mm-hmm. probably the big influence on Blade Runner. Now that that just came out of my head without me thinking it through. It probably was very similar and probably inspired think, Blade Runner. When did uh, when did Akira come out? Akira, Akira the, was... the film was so the manga Akira, I mm-hmm. think, is in the late eighties. And then the film is not long after that, I think. Maybe maybe like eighty seven, eighty eight, eighty nine for all three of those things, all both of those think, things to come out. I want to think that that you know this dystopian future goes back far beyond that there is there's a unquestionably omega dystopia dystopia it, it, unquestionably yeah. does yeah definitely yeah, there's, there's omega are you familiar with the movie omega man i think it was a, a, a book before that so it started uh started charlton heston and it's essentially what oh, I, am, I was I am, just reading a thing about that the i other think day, i am actually. legend i believe i am legend 
was a the same author, maybe Omega Man, and that was in the seventies. You had like Planet of the Apes, or this dystopian future. Soylent Green. Out. There's there's right, apparently a trilogy a trilogy of dystopian Charlton Heston movies. Mm-hmm. I was just listening to a podcast where they're talking about those because I've never seen Omega Man or Soylent Green. Now that I think of it, but I'm I'm more familiar with Soylent Green. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, I don't want to you know spoiler alert, but it turns out it's sure, sure. people. Yeah, but I'm just saying that there this dystopian future based on some type of uh, you know unexplained war is nothing new so i mean gibson didn't well no, no that's and, I, and I don't mean to put him down but he he didn't he, he was taking he was taking ingredients that were sort of already there and he oh, was yeah. putting his, and i think he sort of goes down as the inventor of cyberpunk not tech noir uh-huh. and not sci-fi noir or something but this idea of cyberpunk it's a dystopian future and you have this class of people who are kind of this hybrid of technology and humans it's this sort of um, interplay between them, sort of where they exist, how how technology and humans exist. So that's something that Blade Runner really, I mean, it does sort of, it, it discusses that when it talks about the androids and, and you know, how they are human-like and and what does it mean to be a human? Right. Shoving the nail through his hand and he's got the, the pigeon on, you know, and or dove rather. So, I mean, it's what does it mean to be human? And this is sort of what does it mean to be human in our in our current time when, when we meld with technology? Molly, for example, the femme fatale, they call her a razor girl. So she's got, you know, these razor blades that come out from under her fingernails and she's got mirrored eyes and she's got superhuman ability and all of this stuff because she's had all these enhancements, right? Right. You've got this, this drug guy, Riviera, who could project stuff that's really weird stuff <laughs> make holograms i mean so you've got everybody is like somehow they're cyborgs they're 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 a meld of human and 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 so mm-hmm. that's what cyberpunk is it's like it's not it's a natural state right people don't even question it at that time so yeah i think there are different types of brilliance with some of these things that really pave the way uh, in imaginative literature and what i always use is like the archetype what i'm talking about is star wars there's nothing new mm-hmm. in star wars it's just right, it's a right. whole bunch of cool things from different places brought together into one thing that works as a whole. Mm-hmm. There's nothing new per se in this. This mm-hmm. may be the first time some people have read about some of the elements that are thrown into this thing, but none of them are brand new. I was I was looking at sort of the history of cyberpunk and William Gibson actually coined the term cyberspace. So cyberpunk right. it's right. pretty fair to say it does kind of start with him, but yeah. there's elements like being able to get onto a World Wide Web through like an attachment in your brain that go back into the 60s. People were imagining things like that. There's this yeah, author, sure. Samuel Delaney, that's supposed to be a precursor to William Gibson. And I tried to read one of his books one time, and it was like one of those things you try to read, and it's an actual work of genius because I couldn't understand what was happening. <laughs> I found it off-putting right. in a lot of ways. And I was just like, oh, mm-hmm. man. Like I think sometimes real real imaginative geniuses are like a little hard to put up with you know when you're reading mm-hmm. stuff and i was just like i don't know if i can man i don't know if i can get through this book this is rough yeah. but anyway there's ideas like this that go before this and and there's a group of people a group of authors that sort of directly led to william gibson is writing it, it brings the things all together into one whole mm-hmm. in a way that not a lot of you know it's sort of like lord of the rings is the same sort of thing there's nothing new in lord of the rings it brings together a bunch of things from different sources of inspiration and uh creates a whole and the world ends up being i think maybe what attracts people to it because there's a lot of works that are sort of inspired by the sort of world that 
William Gibson is building here. Yeah. So one of the things I was having some trouble with, and and I've read a couple of other William Gibson books, things I found like on the you know dollar rack at a used bookstore or something. I read mm -hmm. like three or four of his novels. I've just never read this one before. Mm -hmm. And they're mm -hmm. all very much the same, and they're all very much the same in the prose style. I think the appeal to these books a lot of the time is kind of being immersed in what is going on here and trying to figure out all the different little Japanese terms and things that are getting thrown around and, and mm -hmm. stuff from all over the world. And mm -hmm. it's very postmodern. There's a whole bunch of different things going yeah. on and that can be attractive. But as for the prose, I found it really difficult to get through. I don't know if you yeah. felt that way too. Who was the author we were, was it it's Ray Bradbury, right? Brad, Bradbury's, yeah, uh, Fahrenheit 451. Yeah. It was, this is nothing compared to that one. Gibson does have a style. I like postmodern. I like the way you put that. That's a, a probably, and it would fit the times. This has one of the most famous opening lines of any book. This is how the, the book opens. The sky above the port was the color of television tuned to a dead channel. I mean, that's that's great. Now, granted, kids today won't know what the heck that means yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. you know i don't the, know if, the, i don't know if your the, version had the neil gaiman quote but he was talking about how if you wrote that to, today a kid would read that and they'd be they would say blue the sky was yeah, blue, blue yeah because yeah, well, my blue, tv is yeah. dead it's blue yeah right so, uh, great and then that's great probably fun, not true but, today uh, either because now we have home screens on our on our smart tvs you just have a home yeah, screen so there is no dead yeah. channel so it's right. um, it's just we have uh we have revolving pictures of our kids on vacation this is what the uh, to the dead channel would be so um yeah, yeah there you but go. you know yeah so he he writes a lot of metaphors a lot of analogies but there is something to what you said like he he'll jump in the middle of something as if the reader is expected to understand what's going on that oh so-and-so is a razor girl without really this you know, girl is and maybe eventually you figure it out along the way certain things mean and figure it out not through exposition though as you figure it out through the action you know, sort of what's happening. You know, there was a war. You don't really don't know what year this is. It's like in, in the 2020s, I think. Um, no, we know it's after. There, the, there's one date in the whole book, and it says something about the treaties that govern AI, and it says hmm. they were from 53. Okay. And that's so it. I don't that know whether it's 50 yeah. years after that treaty or what, but I know it's yeah. at least after 2053. And I don't. And, and I think there was a there was a war, kind of like a Kira. Uh -huh. There was a war at one time. Yeah. And you don't really know much about that. I mean, so you don't really know the history of where he's at. You don't know. You just kind of, it's kind of like you're plopped into this world. You have no idea. So you kind of have to learn as you go along. Mm -hmm. And it can be a bit frustrating, I think for, a, for but it's, I think it's a very postmodern move. It's like, yeah, you just got to so. go along with it type of thing. The modern world is big and multifaceted and confusing. And therefore the mm -hmm. future is probably even more like that. Yeah. So... Let's just throw you in there and give you that sense, that disorientation that would come with being in this future. And that's fun. I, there really is. I'm looking back. I'm flipping through just now and I'm looking. There's something also about the way the writing is that's making it difficult for me to follow the thread. There's a lot. First of all, tons of dialogue, maybe mm -hmm. three, not, not three quarters, but something like half of the book is dialogue which breaks up the passages a little bit to me. You don't get a narrator's voice as much in your head. It's hard to hear what's happening for me. There's a lot of offsets with commas in the sentences and things like that. Right. There's these long right. sentences with offsets by commas that are just facts that should, to me, be a separate sentence. <laughs> maybe maybe it's just a something about the prose that I'm having a little bit of difficulty with. Well, he was Canadian. Just, he's kind of Canadian. It's actually funny. He grew up in Virginia, down right. in uh, then, Southern Virginia. It's, 
yeah. really weird coincidence that I discovered while I was reading about him was that hmm. so I went on this road trip with my friends one time. I can't remember exactly the details, but we had to go rescue my dad's car from somewhere down in Tennessee. Hmm. We went down and we were coming home and the car engine exploded and we were by the side of the road. I went to a farmhouse and asked for like a phone. You had to use a pay like a phone, like a phone on a wire because nobody has a cell phone yet to call a tow truck. Anyway, we ended up stuck overnight in this town called Witherville, Virginia. And I was with my friends and we ended up playing that we had, I had the books with me for some reason. We ended up playing this cyberpunk role-playing game called Shadowrun. Hmm. And that's hmm. what I did that night. Then we got the car back the next day and drove home. And then I'm reading this and I'm like, so the creator of cyberpunk as a genre was from, from the town where my car broke down and I played cyberpunk role-playing. <laughs> it doesn't seem like the kind of place you'd be from and be like a visionary of the future maybe there's something to that i don't know maybe, maybe there's some maybe there's a reason because remember that guy jaron lanier mm -hmm. yep. was from las cruces yeah yeah it's just one of those coincidences right who's like if what was he he's like the guy who created uh, the term virtual reality right yep he created virtual yeah the father of virtual reality yeah i feel like you could live in messia and pretend that you lived in the 1800s much less than in the, in the 20th century, the 21st right. century. <laughs> right. and, and he's dreaming about yeah. what the deep future is like and i'm thinking maybe there's something to that maybe some people who think about the future a lot don't want to live in the future <laughs> they want to live in the past or he's become very outspoken against technology uh, against um, social media and against he, he wrote one book called uh, like you are not a tool or something like that another one called who owns the future he's very much an anti he's not a luddite or anything but he's uh he's probably anti-ai as well I'm sure know, i'm sure he's aware of the challenges it presents anyway yeah you know okay so he was he was not canadian so he Gibson, he fled to Canada supposedly to dodge the draft, sort of. Mm -hmm. He said that wasn't quite true because the draft number never really came up. Uh, he just went to Canada because that's where all the right. draft dodgers were going. Right, right, right. And yeah. He sort of wanted to be, be close to them. It ended up in Canada. It was kind of like, I remember my stepdad used to always talk about he went to a protest and he burned his draft card when he was at the protest. Mm -hmm. And I was like, mm -hmm. yeah, but you, 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 you can't use your left hand. You would have been 4F. And he was like, well, yeah, I know. It was just a, it was a symbolic protest. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. That was, but it was a protest all the same. So the girls, the girls yeah. are still digging it, you know. Well, let's uh, let's get what out. Did of you think, what we what did you think? What did you? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Let's do that. So, what did you choose for us? So, what I chose for the drink was a directly reference, and I think it might have even been on the first page of the book. Mm -hmm. Kieran beer, which is a Japanese yeah. beer. I don't know anything about it. I don't even know whether I got the right kind. I got Kieran Ichiban. Yeah, which, uh, as far as I know, means number one. This is all almost like olive oil. This is first press, one hundred percent malt at the bottom. I was, I was glad to see that. That it's not second press. What does that mean? That mean? <laughs> oh, I have no man. idea. Back in the day, they used to use reuse the malt from beer. They'd make a strong beer out of the malt, and then they would kind of reuse it, and they'd make a weak beer. So I guess that's sort of what this means. This is the oldest beer in Japan from eighteen eighty eight. Also, the number all one right. selling that's beer in Japan. Bad. So okay. maybe it had something to do with with age, you know, with the tradition of advertising and so forth. But, uh, this is entirely made from wheat, right? This is a um, wheat. I mean, like a a barley, I mean, a grain. It's not made from rice in any way. Yeah. It's not anything that was no, 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 no. in Japan no, before the no, contact no. with the West. Okay. No, um, it was actually created by a Norwegian American initially, and then it was bought out by local Japanese business or a corporation rather, and they brought in German brewers. Uh, to kind of mm -hmm. oversee the operation. So it's really, it's a German style lager. I don't know if we've mentioned this before, but mm -hmm. if you go to a Chinese restaurant, they offer Qingdao beer. 
And, you know, that's it seems strange that there's a beer from China, but it's because when they split up China in terms of spheres mm -hmm. of influence, Jingdao yeah, so was the German there. was the German protectorate. So right. they made right, some yeah. beer there. So, I believe that's actually made by Kieran. That makes sense. Um, but see. where does the but do they import? Do they import the grow gross a little bit of I imagine yeah, I imagine both both China and, and Japan um import most of their foodstuffs anyway. Oh, that's probably true. So yeah. I would imagine I mean, they, I they would uh, there's kind of a burgeoning craft beer industry in Japan where they're you know, they're growing hops there and, and trying to use local ingredients as much as possible. It seems like a very in inoffensive kind of bland beer, like just a lager. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I don't really have terribly much it's to just, say about it. I can see through it, it, it very easily as I, <laughs> as I hold it to the light. It it tastes like it tastes like a Coors or something like that. I mean it's it's a it's a you know, just a decent kind of light German hold on. Yeah, that's just, I, much I gotta get like. this out of my system real quick. It's not um, as offensive as like Bud Light or Coors or Coors Light or something like oh, that. Oh, I'm sorry. I was thinking of not Singtao, but uh Ichiban. Ichiban Shibori uh, is the one oh, I was okay. thinking of. Not not Singtao. My apologies. So they don't own Singtao. I oh, guess it must be its own something. Speaking of owning things, wouldn't you think that William Gibson would have some kind of a claim on the word matrix from having yes. used it in well, this? And then there's a whole film called The Matrix. I I wish I'd looked up well, whether there was any conversation about that, but that seems to me like that'd be the I matrix TM. Well, he didn't come up with the term. A matrix was used in computers, I mean, a long, long time ago. So a matrix, a matrix is a, a set of data. How you can arrange data? Matrix, right, right, and that's right, I right, think right. that's used in mathematics. And so a matrix is really nothing. Yeah, new. it is. Yeah. Cyber is the one that he owns, sort of completely. And cyberspace okay. is the one that he really owns. Um, cyberspace, he, he definitely invented. Yeah. I wonder about cyber, whether cyber is just that word, whether that word mm. is him. I kind of think, because that's got a really strange um, Greek yeah. derivation. If yeah, I you're right. right. That, I, that probably existed before. I don't him, know whether sure. he came up with that. Yeah, that probably existed well before. But cyberspace, we know that he owns that. What do you think is the appeal to this type of world? Because if you think about it, and we could ask the same for Blade Runner and all this stuff. What is the appeal to this dystopian, dark, tech-heavy sort of future? I mean, you're you're removing humanity, and you're removing it seems, all the best of humanity. You're, you don't see flowers growing. You don't see you know babies. You don't see you know, right. all the best things about humanity are, are pretty much removed somehow. Uh, sex, so, beca sex, sex becomes you know a commodity and a tra and transactional. We can be enhanced, perhaps. Um, just like, but a car can be enhanced, you know, you can put, you know, a better carburetor on, on an engine and make it faster. And the same thing goes with people and stuff. So what is it about this type of gray, dark future that people find? Appealing? So, so there, I think there's two functions to it. I think one, I think for some people, dystopia is appealing. I mm -hmm. sometimes get kind of depressed reading about dystopias. I don't enjoy mm -hmm. that to a large extent. Like even now, I find myself every time I think about what's going on with AI in the world and everybody being on their phones all the time, and I kind of get a little despondent about the future sometimes. It doesn't mm -hmm. seem like some place that I want to live or be a part of. But yeah. I think some people just get a kick out of reading about like a bad future. Maybe some people, a pessimism, there's a pessimistic bent to their personality that they think resonates with them when they read this. But the other the other thing about it is that, and, and, and I'm taking it because I remember, like I said, there are cyberpunk role-playing games. I played several of them when I was growing up, and I never really enjoyed being in those settings because they were depressing. You know, they they have a tendency to reflect the politics of the people 
there's a lot of things like end stage capitalism and like the destruction of nation states and things like that that appeal to to a certain kind of person and it's it kind of rhymes with punk it tends to be the same kind of people that enjoy punk to a large extent um there's an anarchist impulse in that that i think people enjoy but on a very simple level whatever you think about the setting it creates a really good environment for a story because there's chaos and there's like elements of you know it, it, there's it's an interesting and a setting to wander around there's a lot of different elements it's sort of like the wild west would not have been a pleasant place to live in reality that'd be a bad place to live but it makes a right. great setting yeah. for a story because there's violence and adventure and a lot of things you know the middle ages same thing middle ages not a great time to be alive yet it well, creates I was a really say, great, yeah. right it creates a really great setting for a story i think that's sort of what this is i think this is similar i think this creates a situation where you know like like in like in the star wars movies there's like this chaotic civil war going on in the first part and then that ends and there's supposed to be this peaceful time and what no that's a pretty boring time to tell a story so the first thing you have right. to do is topple that to have the next yeah. sequel trilogy and uh you know there's not a lot of interest in in the kinds of settings where it would actually be pleasant to live sure sure and i think a well, cyberpunk future is very much one of those and in star wars you know it's interesting because you have so lucas gets around the problem of a set environment by having these different planets and so you have mm. Tatooine which is like this outpost frontier mm. planet where everything's dirty and dusty and it's almost like being in the wild west right and then you have then you have other planets which are all city and you know maybe you know where the, the empire is and, and you have like cloud city and stuff like that and so you have right very high tech and very kind of out west you have books like you mentioned Lord of the Rings like how often do those people shower Right, you know, or right. bathe. I should say, you know, you'd like to think often, but you never know. Maybe Gandalf had a trick, but you know, in this in this type of world, it's pretty much all drab. Although free space, but yeah, that you're talking about the spindle, the satellite. Yeah, city. yeah, the satellite city. There's also a lot of characters and terms and things in this book. Considering it's bare, it's not even quite 300 pages long. There's a lot of things to keep track of. It would it would reward you read it slowly. And being thoughtful about each of the each of the people and places that come up in the book, and I think sort of having to read it at a fairly good pace was not helping my comprehension of a complicated of a complicated <laughs> setting right. and, yeah. and plot lines. Yeah. But yeah, there's there's this basically the floating city up in space, which I gather was like a is like a gigantic disc, a gigantic version of the thing in two thousand one that generates gravity by rotating. Freeside. Freeside. There you go. Yeah, freeside. Yeah, it's supposed to be like a big kind of like Las Vegas type yeah. place that you know was all glitzy and glamour and stuff. You know, and what so what's interesting is you have down on the on Earth everything's a sprawl, which reminds me mm -hmm. of Judge Dredd. If you remember Judge Dredd, you have everything's called the I think it's called the sprawl or something like that. That term comes from the book that that we did on the show a little while back that we had guests host for that was uh, Caves of Steel. That's the first place mm -hmm. where anybody ever mentioned the sprawl because and that's sprawl, that takes yeah. place hundreds of years in the future where New York is like metastasized to most of the East right. Coast and and that comes uh, yeah. and that becomes again that's a running theme in semi dystopian future. I was even thinking Big Hero Six that that Disney movie which is actually pretty good. It takes mm -hmm. place in like San Fran Tokyo or something like that. You know, it's San just big Tokyo or something like that. Yeah, yeah, or something like that. Yeah, it's yeah. this big kind of hybrid Japanese sprawling place. 
And then you have, like I said, in the Dread uh, universe, the Judge Dread universe, you have you know you have these huge spalls. I think there was one from like New York to Washington D.C. or something like that. And you have that on Earth, you know, and everything else maybe is a wasteland. But then in space, so they escape in space and they go to Freeside, and it's uh -huh. this glitzy, glamorous type of place. But at the same time, it's just as raunchy and dirty as it is on Earth, right? You can get drugs everywhere. Death is still mm -hmm. actually it's it's sometimes somehow worse in a lot of places. And that actually reminded me of the fifth element sort of had that thing going where they had that. Yeah. There's definitely some cyberpunk. Yeah. Cyberpunk and Blade Runner is all over fifth element. Yeah, sure. for sure. Uh, Flossed in paradise, which was that cruise ship kind of out in the middle uh -huh. of space that they went to sort of the yeah, same type definitely. of concept, you know, I'm trying to remember the name of the books and there's a show you might've seen the show or read the books. I don't know, but there's a show where, People are uploading the altered carbon. That's what I'm trying to think of. Do you do you know that one? It's this. Huh. It's this. Uh, I think it's ended up being a series of books. But basically, a lot of it is rich people have the ability to upload their consciousness and then put that consciousness into a new body. And it and uh, that's that one is like a hundred percent related to uh, neuromancers. Definitely some. Yeah. Um, yeah. That one's inspired sure. by it. And that was pretty big. That's a big, that was a show too, a pretty successful show as well. So in the matrix, there's a lot of things that are, that are inspired by William Gibson. I would think. What's interesting is humanity's, can we say that we're sort of marching that direction? I mean, Elon Musk has been working on this thing called Neuralink. Are you familiar with that? I'm familiar with the idea of it. I know. I think it's been about 10 years since I first read this, but they had a guy who I think he'd had, I think he was paralyzed or something and he could sit and play space invaders on a computer mm -hmm. by being attached to the computer and get to right. like the third or fourth level of space invaders right. with his mind. Right. And our, yeah. I'm, I'm assuming Neuralink is something like that. Yeah. That's, that's a lot of what it is. So Neuralink is an interface between you and technology, but it's implanted mm -hmm. in your brain. It's a company that Elon Musk owns spending a lot of money in R and D and uh -huh. his, First kind of idea is to help people whose backs have been severed or injured and they have right. loss of mobility. So to help them regain you know, mobility. He also says that uh, humans will be able to interface with, with computers kind of without uh, keyboards, yeah. without any other right. interface, just basically through the mind. And eventually that will be able to interface with each other. He kind of envisions this world where words are unnecessary that we can speak to each other almost telepathically but it would be through Neuralink, which is insane right but if you think about it oh gosh in a hundred years from 1900 to, to 2000 how far did we none of that seems unreasonable for like a long-term horizon projection you know like a hundred years like that that seems about right that like yeah, exactly. I, I mean, mean I don't, we don't really know, like we said, when this is supposed to take place. It's asynchronous. The way like some of the things in this are, are exactly correct predictions of what would be possible mm -hmm. in like the 2050s. Mm -hmm. And some things mm -hmm. completely missed technological developments that happened five years after he wrote the book. Cell uh, phones. Like, like cell phones. I mean, that, <laughs> right, that's an right. obvious one. That's, that's a big really one, yeah. Everybody misses because it's not even cell phones. I mean, cell phones are kind of a big deal. The really big deal is the smartphone and being able to being able to access the internet like in the palm of your hand. I just right, don't think right. people could have conceived of that. I remember the first time I saw Wi-Fi. I think it was about 2003. And it was the mm -hmm. first time I'd ever thought of such a thing being possible, much less the first time I'd right. seen it. Somebody was like, oh, you got to get a Wi-Fi card for your laptop to get on the internet. And I was like, you can get on the internet over like wirelessly i was like that's none yeah. of this cyberpunk stuff had that nobody thought yeah. of that 
That just wasn't a thing. Right. And I don't know why that was such a leap, why like nobody was think, talking uh, about it. Tesla envisioned a world where you could transmit data like through the air or something. But nobody really took Tesla seriously. Everybody thought he was kind of a oh Nikola Tesla, yeah. Nikola Tesla, about, yeah. He had a thing about transmitting energy through the air. That's what that's what he wanted. Yeah. He wanted to transmit electrical power uh, yeah. without having actual cables. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe he might have had something like that. But huh. it's um anyway. that was one that that was one that caught me. That was literally in 1992 when I was reading about the future. I had no concept that such a thing would ever be. Not even sure. 1998. Yeah. I didn't think such a thing yeah. was going to be possible. And then there it was the next day. And then yeah. not long after they had that, you could suddenly get it over the, over your phone. Right. And right. that just, that happened fast. That happened. Well, really a lot of this stuff, you know, sci-fi yeah. is, sci-fi is, it's all, it's all imagination. And, and there's a lot of hit or miss. I remember they, you know, one of the, uh, War of the Worlds, for example, the famous example is Wells thought of lasers, for example, because, right. for example, because the Martians had these heat beams that would, shoot out mm -hmm. out and, and they would hit somebody and then they would just kind of turn burst into flames and stuff and, and everybody mm -hmm. said oh that's a laser and he was like prophesizing a laser and and just the idea of these huge tripods that that they controlled from inside and walk around so but i mean you have to make up something right you have to use your imagination create something and it's just it's hard maybe to get it all fahrenheit 451 didn't come up with anything <laughs> there was no new technology in there you know, no, no. They were using they were using kerosene and, and matches to to burn stuff. No. So that might as well have know. been the 1950s. I can't even remember yeah. whether there was anything. Is there anything in it that was actually futuristic technology? I no, I don't know. I mean, other than, well, I mean, a lot of nuclear bombs at the end, but yeah, but know, he was writing was, at a time where that was the thing. He was just kind of magnifying the 1950s by a few yeah. years and imagining. I mean, they still had cars. Them. The cars went really fast, but they still had cars. Oh, there was the robot dogs. That's right. There was a robot dog, which I guess we could dog. say. I guess we could say is the Google dog that that they're starting. Oh, in yeah. fact, uh, New, I think New York has deployed the robot dog, haven't they? No, I haven't been bitten by have. one yet. Well, I think they have. I, gonna, I may look this up just to just to so stuff for nightmares. I have seen robots on the streets, but I, yes. I saw robots on the street. There were robots on the campus at George Mason, I think, before I moved away to New Mexico. So, like eight or nine years ago, it was the first time I saw right. a robot so, puttering around the campus. It, I don't know if New York it. Police Department has acquired semi-autonomous robotic canines. Mm -hmm. uh, so okay. that yeah, they've deployed they've deployed those uh, those Google robot dog things in New York City, and they'll be using them for. Let's see, they'll have autonomous capabilities, which is scary. So they'll be patrolling by themselves. They'll be deployed in specific instances, bomb squad robots. They're not going to be patrolling right. the street, biting people that that you know public for, for for the time being. Uh, give them some time. They'll be they'll be on the subways with you, which maybe is needed. But in any case, yeah. So I mean, yeah. uh, that was I guess we could say Bradbury you know, ushered in the robot dog. But at the same time, yeah. he was still using kerosene to light stuff on fire with matches. Right. Yeah. And and everybody has a has books. The only way to get information <laughs> is books. Yeah. Back to this one though. There's a lot of stuff that's way ahead of where we are. Like biotechnology is not where he's predicting. But the internet seems the matrix seems very. I don't know how to describe it. It seems wrong. You go into it and you try to access data. With, mm -hmm. with a sort of avatar that you walk up to these geometric things and you try to access data that way physically. Yeah. I guess what I'm what I'm wondering about it is what is the point of having your brain so connected? I mean, then they can defend it with these, uh, you know, black ice, uh, intrusion 
countermeasures that can like fry your brain and stuff. So why not yeah. use the internet without having that? Why, why make yourself vulnerable to such a thing? What's the purpose of that? It's cool. It's definitely yeah. cool. But Do, are you familiar with, is it Second Life? Was that the name of the heard of it. I've heard virtual of it. world? So it sort of always reminded me of, of that. And Second Life, which was created before like Oculus or any of the, or Meta or any of the other kind of like virtual world stuff or, or virtual reality uh -huh. stuff. You would access Second Life through a terminal. So you're looking mm -hmm. at, you're looking at supposedly this new world. And it was a virtual world and you had an avatar and you could do things like buy property, you could buy brands, you could open stores, you could sell stuff in there and like sell digital mm -hmm. products and the digital products you could make in there. It was yeah. kind of insane. And I mean, arguably Minecraft, you could do the same thing in, the, in Minecraft and the shared servers, you know, but the, the, the next step was the putting on the, the, the virtual glasses. So now you're in that world, right? You're uh -huh. not controlling it with a keyboard and mouse. You're in it, you're seeing it, you're kind of, it, it's all around you. So there's that part. And then sort of a, he jacks into it, right? So he connects it with his plug into his, into his spinal cord, which is exactly yeah. what the matrix does. And if you think about yeah, sensory, right. if you think about senses, it, they're simply chemical reactions. That's all they are. I was thinking about that, that, about that earlier today, that everything, everything is a, is a chemical reaction. If you hug somebody, you get a chemical reaction. Oh, yeah. yep. That's why it's pleasant. If you taste something, it's a chemical reaction and you like it or you don't like it. Right. Yeah. And so if by plugging into your spinal cord, which is, you know, where all your, your nerves and, and so forth are, and it can mimic all of that, then there is no mm -hmm. difference. That's what the whole point of the matrix was. There's no difference yeah, between no, that absolutely. and reality. Right. I get why um, you'd want to do that like as an escapist thing, right? Yes. Like that, I totally yes. understand that. That virtual yes. reality that was perfect like that, I, that would be people wouldn't do anything else. They'd just stay in their rooms and do that. But mm -hmm. why mm -hmm. would you be accessing data for like commercial and military and, and other purposes that way in a way that makes it so dangerous? Like why? <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of... Well, I think, I think you know, I think why it do you was need a, to be physically a, in there? Well, he was, a, he was a hacker and I think it had something to do with I think they envision, I think he was envisioning the internet as a literally a matrix, like a three dimensional matrix. Like, yeah, like, like Tron. Gosh, when did Tron come out? Tron must have been 1981. I didn't even think about that. It, it might have been 82. It's, it's right around the same time. I mean, Tron was super early, but, you know, Tron. I think Tron, I think Tron was one of those things that, well, first of all, the movie itself, like the plot of the movie was kind of meh. But I think it also yeah. just went over everybody's head. Like, I think it's just too much for people in 1981 or 82 or whatever that was. Yeah. So that um, was 82. Yeah. Was but, but the, the whole idea of Tron was that there is this, there's a world inside the computer, right? Uh -huh. It's the computer yeah. world. And it's a three dimensional type of thing that if you access it, then, then, you know, you see the computer programs as things, you know, not just mm -hmm. programs, right? And that idea is, I mean, even you could say that Wreck-It Ralph is sort of the same thing. Yeah. These programs are things and they do things right. and they, they interact and so forth. And so this is, I think that's what he's sort of envisioning the internet as or the cyberspace as, right? It's this right. connected world. It's almost, like a, it, it's almost like a misunderstanding of how the internet would work or like over analogizing. Like if you picture the internet as connected yeah. nodes. That therefore it makes sense to go in there and walk around between the nodes and do things. And it's like that doesn't really over analogizing. 
Yeah, you're like I've never, you're heard, like thinking I've, I've never heard of that. But but you're thinking but I think of it as like you're like here's one server that's at one place and yes. another server at another, and they're connected in the internet, yeah. you know, by yeah. by programs and by and by uh -huh. pathways and stuff. And so therefore, you know, like that old guy saying that the internet's a series of tubes. It's like you're picturing yeah. it that way, but that isn't really what it is. Well, no, I, I think or how it you know, I, I mentioned I mentioned Wreck and Ralph, and I think that's the best analogy. Like he had, like you would travel through yeah, it's the so plug, good. the plugs from one arcade to the other, arcade game to the other. You travel right. through the plugs, and you go from Cuber mm -hmm. to whatever it was, right? You know, there was like a central clearinghouse, and in the second one, they go into the internet and they find like right. this guy's like a scammer. And they, they they hired a scammer to do this stuff for him. And I think that's how Gibson was thinking about it. Like, okay, here's the computer program and stuff, but there are like some bugs mm -hmm. in that program that are like shadowy guys that maybe we can get to to do this or that or something. I don't know. It's an interesting yeah. way to think about it. You know, he's he's thinking about it as an entirely different universe, essentially, which is maybe the point, you know, may, and maybe it is. Who's to say, right? Um, especially right. with artificial intelligence, who's to say that that we live in in a real world and and that's not, which I guess is what it what they want us to kind of question and and think about. It starts hurting my head after a while. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. It's a little confusing. And there's some questions about consciousness and things like that in this book. I thought one of the coolest ideas is towards the end when he's talking to the AI, and the AI tells him that it it found in the signals detected yes. by SETI back in the 70s, another AI yeah. sending signals from from the Centauri system. And I was like, oh, yeah. okay, that's pretty yeah. cool. I like that idea. Yeah. I don't yeah. know if that makes any sense, but I like that idea that only the AI could pull out the signal. It could analyze the signal at such a high level that it could pull out what was probably an intelligent signal coming from somewhere else. Right. I thought that, thought that but was the implication, throwaway. what is the implication of that? To the me, implication the implication that is that there must be, there must have been a planet with another their intelligent species on it in the Centauri system that put together an internet, created an AI, right. and now that AI is able to contact, was sending a message to Earth that only this AI in the 21st century can pick up on. Uh, maybe so it's means that, something else, but that was what... Well, I think, I think you know, that means that the AI is the supreme, sort of supreme being. First of all, we are no longer useful, right? They don't need us. And that and that the the if the AIs are talking to each other and finding other AIs, you know, what are we? Mm -hmm. Like that's a different life, that's a different life form at that point, right? Kind of redefining yeah, what I life guess is, so. what, what what it means, our place in the in the universe. I think There's Case a lot of questions. Case is the Case is the protagonist. I think Case asked uh Wintermute, who's the AI, once AI and Neuromancer, who's the other AI, once they they merge, I think Case asks that if it is God. Like, are you God now? I uh -huh. can't remember what it says. It's 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 it was a complicated answer. Like, um, you know, I'm just re I'm, yeah. I'm reality or something like that. You know, it was making me envision know, but... a future where you've got an AI that has developed to mm -hmm. the point where it could just sort of masquerade as God to people. Like, it could just tell right. everybody it's a God, and it can do everything, and it it could definitely exist that way. And then I was thinking, yeah. what if there were more than one? Then you'd have like lots of gods competing with each yeah. other, sending mixed messages to humanity about what <laughs> right. they want. I was imagining a world like that. Yeah. I was thinking, oh, I, I know somebody's done that before. I know I'm not the first to sure, think along sure. those lines, but it was uh, kind of a cool idea. That one, that was the one part of the book that kind of set me off on like imagining something I never really thought about before. Some of the reflections yeah. on AI, and obviously those are pretty germane right now because because we've got Chat GPT right. really sort of showing people that it pretty much is passed. Are people saying it's pretty much passing the Turing test? Right, you can't tell you're talking to a computer when you're right. talking to it. Or not really, Correct. anyway. You know, not 
unless somebody told yeah. you that. You might think there was something wrong with the person you're talking to, but you wouldn't mm -hmm. think it was mm -hmm. a robot necessarily. So, and there are some, um, you know, there are some people well, that, we, that discount completely. There's a physicist, uh, Michio Kaku. Are you familiar with him? He's that Japanese physicist yeah. with the white, kind of what cool looking white hair, hair yeah. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he he just he dismisses AI. He's like, all it does is repeat what other people have said. That's all it does. It's no big deal. My objection to that argument is this: all I am is an intelligence that repeats a bunch of stuff that other people have said to me. You That's what I do. Right. I've been taking yeah, in words yeah, ever yeah. since I was born and ideas. I'm reformulating sure. them yeah. in my head coming up with new utterances yeah. you know there's some software that i came wired with basically or sorry there's some hardware i have and i think you do actually start life with some software some programs that are running for like how to learn language and things like that but that's all i am is just a bunch of facts that have been put together into like a new personality i don't see how that's right. different from ai except in, in in question of degree you know like how much of it is happening and in one way, well, the AI is better, right? It has access to a heck of a lot more information than I do. But in another ways, it's worse. You know. Consider this though: um, in 2016, a Google AI—it was a—it was a machine, neural machine translation AI—in 2016 invented its own language without prompting, without the the programmers telling it to do it, without any help whatsoever. And the programmers found these, and the way they found it was they found these commands that that they had never mm. seen before. And they're like, what does this mean? And so they were quizzing the AI about it. What is this? You know, and it's, well, it was faster. Mm. I, I figured it was faster if I did it this way. So it invented its own language mm. to talk, to essentially talk to itself, to give itself commands. And they shut it down because they got scared. They're like, holy crap, cow, this thing's... Yeah. When it can do that, yeah. you know, that's that's doing more than... That's not just repeating what other people say. That's literally learning and creating and doing new stuff, right? And that was in... Um, well, it's sort of... I guess what I'm saying is it's like even when a human being creates something new, it's kind of like what we said about some of these works of imaginative fiction are like recompiling and spitting out and something. I think that's what you're always doing when you do something creative is you're always putting together some things you saw before and putting a different spin on it. Like there's no magic yeah. in the process, I guess is what I'm saying. It's, so it's the computer is going right. to do the same thing. It might not be as good at it yet, but there's no reason to think it shouldn't be able to do that. It's interesting. I actually haven't even done that. I haven't gone and interacted with chat GPT yet. I should probably try that. We'll see. It's interesting. Yeah, that would be interesting. Well, anyway, <laughs> so let's talk about what, what were our biggest surprises in, uh, in Neuromancer. What was well, yours? It's hard to say because I've read this before. I guess, you know, the, the one that always, that was a big surprise to me back then. First time, because I read this, I think, I read this in the 90s. And my my biggest surprise back then, sort of still my biggest surprise, was the use of Microsoft. It was yeah, sort of a I thought that was they funny. Didn't, they, didn't, they didn't really, he didn't really focus on it. Uh, but Microsoft was this way to implant technology into your brain, I think. That's uh -huh. sort of what it was. So this is 84, but I think, I think Bill Gates's Microsoft was like eighty-two or something. Um, I think so. Yeah, I think the and, I think the company. No, I think the I think Microsoft might go back to like nineteen seventy-nine. Yeah, Is it I think, not? you know that it might. I mean, um, the, but but it was just it was, it was always interesting he, to me that this was. I was thinking he might have just come up with the term independently because I was thinking he might have just was thinking software, but it's really really small, mm -hmm. so it can go into your body. Right. 
So it's a micro right. soft, which obviously today we would call nano soft. If you're talking about something small, somebody's <laughs> sure. body would be on the micro scale, but micro is not small. Um, no, I don't think so. Yeah, I think I want to say the micro scale is like where you can see a human hair. Like a mm -hmm. human hair is micros wide. And mm -hmm. if you want to be in cells and inside your body, you're going to have to be at the nano scale. But I don't know. Right. So it's just the use of that term. Yeah, I, I made a little note about that. I was curious whether that was a nod to Microsoft, the company. I don't know how prominent that would have been in people's head at that time. I think that was a really new company and not one with yeah, much it profile have, in 1984. I don't even think DOS came out until like 85 or 86. So it was it was after the book was published. But I don't think there's okay. any connection between them. But yeah, that's interesting. So so mine was the connection between uh, the title of the book, mm -hmm. Neuromancer. I thought was just like appealing was was applying to uh, sort of mancy is like magic neuromancy would be the magic of using your brain and your nervous system and sort of a reference to being on the internet which is kind of what it is i was in a way and i just thought the neuromancer was the main character that was because that was mm -hmm. his job it probably is him mm -hmm. to some extent but i was surprised when it turned out to be the uh the child AI that was in there, who I think is essentially the kid that he talks to when he, when he, uh, the kid that helps him bend spoons and things is probably kind of patterned on the neuromancer from this. Maybe. Book. Yeah. And also the double entendre, again, I guess a triple entendre of new romance with neuromance mm -hmm. with, which is very much like a punk idea of like living in the modern world, mm -hmm. you know, embracing the technology on one hand, but also rejecting it and appealing to like older yeah. roots and, and more mm -hmm. deeply human things and the conflict between technology mm -hmm. and humanity. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, that's actually a really cool part of the name. I like that a lot. New yeah. Romance. And that's kind of a, a nod to that. I don't know if that was intentional on the part of the author, but definitely thought it was cool. And then I had a little, little extra. And this is like kind of changed my life surprise was he makes an offhand reference to something called Sanpaku. Did you, did you catch that? Mm -hmm. when he's talking about his girlfriend and her eyes and how she has Sanpaku. So I was like, Oh, mm -hmm. what is that? So I went and looked it up and it's, if you can see the white of your eye above the iris or below the iris, it's mm -hmm. a condition called sanpaku. And Japanese people think it means that you have like a curse, like sort of a cursed destiny or you're a drug user or you're, you're some sort of tragedy hover, hovers over you. And my mm -hmm. first thought when I read that, I was like, I was thinking, you can't see people's, you can't see the white of people's eyes. I went through the pictures on my phone and looked at the photographs of people. You can't. People, people's mm -hmm. eyes, for the most part, you can't eyelids. see the whites below or yeah. above the iris. I was really surprised by that. If I drew a person, I think I would have drawn a person mostly with showing the whites of their eyes. Right. Um, I just thought that was very surprising that I didn't notice <laughs> the basic fact about the human what? face. What a, a weird, weird, obscure thing. Yeah. Wow. I, that was... I think that takes the cake for the most obscure surprise. Yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. I want to talk real, real quick. I know we're, we're past it almost, but I do want to talk about the difference between Winter Mute, which is the AI who hires him, and right. Neuromancer. And so Winter uh -huh. Winter Mute's objective is to pair with Neuromancer and become one entity and become a supreme intelligence. Okay, Win Winter Mute is, I mean, the difference between them, but it's there. So they have this kid, a child represents Neuromancer, right? Mm -hmm. And Winter mute is represented by all these people that Case knows, and okay. he kill he kills half the time. But it's um, but these grown ups right. that he knows, kind of that he's known and talked to, that he's comfortable and familiar with. But there's this kid is really unsettling. It's like an eight year old boy in every sci fi kind of movie that I've ever seen with with a little boy. Yeah, like an Akira or something. It's always weird. <laughs> this little boy right. means 
means some type of disaster is imminent, right? It's red, always rum, used. Red it's, rum. <laughs> yeah, always used as some like has no yeah. conscience. Will I'm thinking of like the kid in Pet Cemetery. There's no Damien. Yeah, Damien, right? And so it's it's really it's used as a as a very specific mythical creature, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and I yep. think Neuromancer is described at one point as being a demon. Like he's not, he's a demon is, is what yeah. he is. He's described as, right? Yeah. And if you think about it, it's really weird. I mean, the interplay with Neuromancer is trying to get Case to stay there or tempting mm-hmm. Case to stay, stay, you know, stay here. Why? Why would you go back to that? Just stay here. Right. You'll have, you know, might as well. It was, it's almost like Neuromancer's creepy, you know, very creepy type of thing. Wintermute seems to have a very logical, like, idea about who it is, what it is, and what it wants to do. And Neuromancer right. seems to have no conscience, no moral compass, just pure lot. Well, I don't even know about logic. Well, I guess it would be ultimate logic, right? Um, and then they link up into one AI super being at the end, basically. Right. And you don't really get a sense of what's going to happen, right? No, it's, I don't know what's, you know, I don't know what's happening. Uh, they, they contact Case and say, you know, you're cured. You've got a lot of money. Thanks for helping us. And we've mm-hmm. linked up with this AI from Alpha Centauri. And uh, things are good. And uh-huh. and that's it. And it's like, what's going to happen now, you know, which is a great way to right. send off the, the end of the book. So anyway, which is apparently um, it's a trilogy. And I didn't even realize that there are other books right. that follow on from this one. Well, something about so, the Jamaicans in space really seemed familiar to me. And I was trying to remember if I'd read this before or whether I don't know. But yeah, the Rastafarians, not, not Jamaicans, Rastafarians, maybe speaking in, dub, speaking in dub or singing in dub or whatever. Oh, I I really just wish authors would never use dialect in their writing. That was driving me crazy. Like, I know. Uh, anyway, that's tough. That's tough. Especially when they're not speakers of that dialect. So I'm kind of questionable <laughs> about what the people. I'm like, is that, that's not how Jamaicans really talk. So no, anyway, difficult. what's your vote? What do you what do you say about the classicity of this one? What do you think? Are you toast? I have to I have to vote it a classic. I mean, this is oh, okay. Neuromancer right. is. I'm not saying all of Gibson's work. This is his premiere. Everything else this is his big work. That, yeah, it's yeah. right out the gate. I don't know if people expected big things from him. I don't think he ever lived up to this. This is what he's known for. And he's written novels up until I think his last one was published in 2020 or something. And I'm like, and I, I, really? hate to, I hate to extend I hate to extend things anymore. But I, I did want to mention one thing is that he was commissioned to write this book and mm-hmm. put under a year, a year long contract to yeah, get the contract, book done. Yeah. Which he yeah. said really stressed him out and put the put yeah. the screws to him to get it done. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking that's a good thing. That's probably yeah, I would love sure. that. I would love for if sure. somebody was just like you have a year, well, you have a year to write this book. And, and everything and he'd written before this, crap. everything was was short stories before this. He didn't think he had a novel in him, you know. Mm-hmm. And he reused stuff from previous short stories and he kind of mm-hmm. so he created this universe and he made that kind of an right. expanded universe as Marvel calls it. But um, yeah. And that's why yeah, the so, I mean, Blade Runner thing was so upsetting to him because he was in the middle of writing the darn book yeah. and he was like, "Oh no, they're going to think oh, I just no. watched yeah. Blade yeah, Runner right. ripped it off." You know exactly. So, so but um, but I'm not saying all of Gibson's work. You know, he's had, and it's not saying that he doesn't hasn't had good stuff. I watched uh, one of my favorite episodes of X Files was one that he wrote, for example. Oh, but I mean, so he's written a lot of really good stuff, but this was his his work, right? And it was because yeah. I think he it ushered in. Uh, the genre of cyberpunk, it created kind of a new way to talk about technology and the future and create a new term, a new way to think about it, especially mm-hmm. when it came to, to human 
kind of technology hybrid, you know, thinking about what does it mean to be human in this in this time, which you know, it goes beyond, you know, do Android dream of electric sheep or whatever it is, some mm-hmm. of the stuff that had come before him. So yeah, I think absolutely right. it's a classic. I mean, six and a half million okay. copies can't be wrong. So but I'm going to toast yeah, this. No, I mean, I think it just this. basically created a genre. I think you got to, yeah. I don't know if that was audible, but I gave a little toast. So um, I think that's it for this week, right? That is it for this week. I haven't picked out the movie yet. Free. It'll be it'll be movie it'll be movie, movie and then free choice for, for Dave MacArthur. Uh, toasting the classics. Bye, everybody. And for Clint Lanier, don't forget to pick up my book. Available now on Amazon. Every, every place you find finer books. It's called Ted Mac and America's First Black Owned Brewery: The Rise and Fall of People's Beer. And for uh, toasting the classics. Out. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. That's it for episode 77 of Toasting the Classics. For those playing along at home, get some vodka and Kahlua to make Black Russians for our discussion of 1982's 48 Hours. If you'd like to get in touch, please send us an email at toastingtheclassics at gmail.com. Send us show ideas, comments, complaints, and let us know if you are really a demon AI plotting world domination. We, for one, welcome our new superhuman overlords. Check out my blog at theattractivenuisance.com and follow us on Twitter at @attractivenuisance. Our music was written by Michelle MacArthur. See you next time on Toasting the Classics.